Let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 26 today. 1 Samuel chapter 26, title of the message today is The Daily Grind. The Daily Grind, and it is that some days, isn't it? It is the daily grind. I know for me, I've been sick this whole week. I ask for your grace and patience with me today. But uh, yeah, I was called Kyle. I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to make it this week, man. I need you to have something ready to go. He texted me yesterday, are you going to make it? <laughs> like, I don't know if I'm going to make it, but I'm going to try. So, But some days, man, it is a daily grind, isn't it? Some days it is just difficult. It is hard. How many football fans do we have here? Football fans, lots of y'all. You guys are going to be happy to hear 74 days until the first day, first game of the season. It's a Thursday night game between the Patriots and the Steelers. They're kicking it off. Uh, to start the 2015 football season. It's been said that football is a game played by 22 people in desperate need of rest, and it's watched by millions of people in desperate need of exercise. (laughs) And that's certainly true. While we enjoy our summer and we just sort of maybe are relaxing this summer, certainly if you're a sports fan, this is the worst time of year because, you know, there's no basketball, there's no hockey, there's no football. You say, well, there's baseball. Yeah, my point exactly. It's kind of the worst time year this year. But football, 74 days away. And right now, listen, and if you've got high schoolers, you know what I'm about to say is true. Maybe if you played high school football, uh, we might be resting, but right now they're working, right? Practice is happening right now. We're only a few weeks away, several weeks away from Hell Week actually starting up for those aspiring to the football team, Hell Week is when the practices double. You go to, to two-a-days, you know, and you got to practice in the morning, you got to practice at night, they're working you hard. And the whole idea of practice, is it, it serves, and, and certainly Hell Week, serves to, to separate the wheat from the chaff, as it were. They're basically culling down that team. They want to get select the final team, just drop off the people that just can't make it. And then they want to take that final team and want to really just put them through the meat grinder so they're prepared for the season. Now, I I share that by way of introduction, titling the message, The Daily Grind, because that's the way it is in our faith, isn't it? That that there is the daily grind of our faith, and the Bible says, Romans 8, 28, in all things God works together for good to those that love God and are the called according to His purposes, because God wants, He does, put us through the meat grinder, but God knows what He's bringing out the other side. And, and he is preparing us day by day to walk with him. He's fashioning us for heaven. And, he, and he's preparing us day by day for the work that he wants to do in us and through us uh, on an ongoing basis. And, and this is what we see in David's life. Here in 1 Samuel chapter 26, David is going through the meat grinder, man. And he's going through his own unique version of two-a-days. You know, Saul is attacking him. He has faced Saul's spear. He's faced Saul's spies. He's had to endure Saul's hit squads going after him. He's got no home, no job, no country, as it were. He's running for his life. And and Saul is just making his life a living hell going after him. And God is doing all of this because he's preparing David for the kingdom. And so what we're going to find here today is once again, Saul's on the, on, hot on David's heels. He's pursuing him, trying to kill him, and, and God's doing a work in that. We're going to look at three things today. We're going to look at David's fight. We're going to look at David's faith. And we're going to look at Saul's folly. 1 Samuel 26, beginning in verse 1. Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding in the hill of Hakalah opposite Jeshimon? And then Saul arose and he went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And if you've been with us, you're like, wait a minute, this sounds familiar. Didn't already the Ziphites rat him out? Didn't he already go down to the wilderness of Ziph looking for David? Yeah, he's doing it again. This is just more of the same. Second verse, same as the first, you know, kind of thing. So he's going after him. Uh, Verse 3, And Saul encamped in the hill of Hakalah, which is opposite Jeshimon by the road, but David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. 
So this is David's lot. This is what's going on here. This is David's fight. And we're going to note three things to take note of here concerning David's fight. The first thing, if you're taking notes, you can write it down. David's fight was ongoing. His fight was ongoing. You notice, you know, he's, gone, he's down. Where's Saul going after him? Down in the wilderness of Ziph. Well, Ziph means the place of refining. That's what that word Ziph actually means. And David is down in that place of refining. And so God is, you know, just allowing this to happen. He's got that ongoing fight, again, because uh, God is, is preparing David for the throne. And uh, the Bible tells us that Satan is the same way. Not only does Saul continually pursue David, but Satan continually pursues you and me. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So often, we are attacked by the enemy and we wish that when we have victory over Satan's attacks... So often we wish, man, I, I wish that, it, that, that this was done. You know, a person is like, I, the, the enemy attacks me in trusting God for, you know, my finances. And I wish, you know, I got this victory. God gave me victory and, and I'm trusting in God and I know he's going to provide. And I know I've got more month than money. But, but God, you've given me great victory in this. And then the next month comes and the mortgage is due all over again. Right? And you're like, man, I wish that victory that I had last month would stay with me for this month. Or, or maybe, you know, you're, you're battling with the enemy, you got an issue of lust, and you're, you're thinking, oh man, I, I've got victory, I've overcome this thing, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, here it is again. Patrick Morley, he wrote the book, The Man in the Mirror, and uh, it's a great men's devotional. And he shares in the book how, you know, he was having a conversation with some friends of his, and, uh, you know, it's kind of a devotional thing, a men's devotion, and the issue of lust came up, the subject of lust. And he says, oh, you know, that's something that the Lord's given me victory in a long time ago. He said within an hour of that conversation, he was jumping in a cab with a bunch of other people. They were sharing a cab. And he said, I found myself pressed tight into this cab with all these people that had jumped in. And he said, and sitting right next to me is one of the most gorgeous women I've ever seen in my life. And every square inch of the side of my body is pressed up to every square inch of the side of her body. And he said, and the Lord brought back to my mind what had just come out of my mouth just a short time before. And he said, I just spent the whole cab ride just praying. Lord, forgive me. Have mercy on me. Strengthen me, you know. Wouldn't it be so awesome if the, if the trials that we face, if the fight that we face was the one and done kind of thing and we could have permanent victory? Now, it's not going to be that way until we go to heaven, is it? We, our fight is an ongoing thing. And this is what David finds out. His fight is an ongoing fight. And, and as, <coughs> excuse me, as it's an ongoing fight, for, for David, it's hell week. Every single day, the enemy's attacking. We need to expect it. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says this, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And so, so, so the first thing to take note of concerning David's fight is that it was ongoing. The next thing to take note of is that it required him to be alert. It required him to be alert. Verse 4, David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. That word understood, it means literally to learn by gathering data. And so, so David, man, he had to be alert. He had to gather the data. Verse 5, so David arose and he came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay and Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. And now Saul lay within the camp with the people encamped all around him. And so David sent out spies and he himself going with these spies. He's a man's man and he's going, you know, there's, there's excitement, adrenaline you know, a, a covert mission. He's there with them. And, and he is, you know, listen, his fight requires him to do this, to be alert. If you were with us last week, you see that David here is employing really the same tactic that we talked about in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul exhorts us, hey, to be awake, to be alert, to be watchful. 
to redeem the time. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 5, put on the screen for you, verses 14 through 16. Therefore he, God says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. See, while it's true that God allows trials in our lives to perfect us, we still have to be on our guard. And, and it has to do with this issue of light. He says, you know, awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Again, you know, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, it tells us this, you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. See, what happens is this idea is that we're supposed to walk in the light that God gives us. See, the thing is, is that God, he, he gives us light in his word. And, and thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, right? And, and so God's word is the light that we're supposed to, to, to walk in. But what happens is, is that so often men choose to walk in darkness. And what the Bible is saying is that, look, if you're not being alert in your walk, if you're not being circumspectful in your walk and, and watching for where is the enemy, where is the enemy at work, where is the enemy trying to derail me? See, because the Bible says that there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So what happens is we've got this unholy trinity in our life. You've got Satan and the, the demons that are, that are working to, to, to lead you astray. You have the world system that's working to lead you astray. And you have your own sinful flesh that's working to lead you astray. And if you're not taking heed to God's word and have your head on a swivel to go, am I being deceived here? Is the enemy throwing a curveball here? Is there, is there some temptation here? which appeals to my sinful nature, which I'm rationalizing away, which I'm really thinking, well, that seems right to me, but I haven't really taken the opportunity to look into God's Word and to evaluate this in the course of, of in, the, in, the, in the way of the light, well, then you can be deceived and walk in darkness. And he says, you know, he likens it to somebody who sleepwalks. Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead. Christ will give you life. You, you, there, there are things you do when you're sleepwalking well, okay, I'll give you an example. Brenda and I, when we were first married, <coughs> first year of our marriage, Brenda's pregnant with, with my oldest, Megan, and all of a sudden, we're, you know, we, we ought to sleep, we're, we're, I'm sound asleep, and I wake up to my wife screaming. Well, I was having a dream that we were being attacked, and I grabbed the attacker around the neck, and I started hitting him. Now, thankfully... This is how rumors get started, right? Ted, Pastor Ted beats his wife. <clears throat> um, thank, thankfully, your muscles aren't that coordinated when you're sleeping. So, I mean, I really wasn't hitting her all that hard, but it was just enough that I'd grab and was doing this. Now, what was I doing? I was sleeping. I was, in, I was in attacking, and I wasn't hitting my wife. I was hitting an attacker, right? But it was completely me, you know, operating in my sleep. And this is what the Bible says when we walk in darkness, that, that, that this can, can happen. So we have to be alert in our walk. We have a daily fight. And it is a knockdown, drag out, day after day pursuit of the enemy coming after us. And we have to be alert. We have to be watchful. We have to redeem the time. And so we see David being attentive to recognize the danger, right? But notice that he's equally attentive to respond to the danger. Verse 6 tells us, then David answered. And that word answered, it means literally to respond to. It's not that he responded verbally. It's that he responded in the verb sense. Verb is an action and he took action, right? And so David answered, and how did he answer? He said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai, the son of Zariah, brother of Joab, who obviously came with him to spy out the area, and he says to them, who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. Listen, not only was David's fight 
ongoing. Not only was David's fight something that required him to be alert. Third point I want you to take note of is that David didn't face his fight alone. He did not face the fight alone. And listen, you cannot face the spiritual battle that you were called to fight day in and day out alone. You cannot face it alone. You know, we see examples of this in our everyday life. We see examples of this in Scripture. You know, a firefighter takes that that hose line and he goes in and he attacks a burning building. You don't take the hose line in alone. You got somebody on the line with you. You make entry with a partner. You make entry with someone else. You know, if you're, you're learning how to scuba dive, what is the, the mantra that they just drill into your head from, from day one when you're learning how to do it? Never dive alone. And you see it in Scripture. Jesus, he sent out his disciples in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 6. And how does he do it? He sends them two by two. Right? Uh, again, in Luke chapter 10, he sends out 70 others also. How does he send them out? Sends them out two by two. And you see throughout the scriptures, just over and over again, this phrase, one another, one another, one another. Why? Because you need to have your brothers and sisters in Christ to help you in your battle facing the Lord. Now, men are famous for putting up walls. Men are famous for going it alone, for being, you know, I'm an island, man, you know, and, and just, I, I want to go it alone. But you can't, you absolutely need to have Somebody go with you in the fight. King Solomon wrote this. He said, two, two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. Perfect illustration of where two or more are gathered in Christ Jesus. He's there in the midst. This threefold cord. Often we read this scripture at a wedding saying, listen, it's, you know, husband and wife and Jesus Christ as that, that you know, person that binds this thing together. And, and, and the thing is, is that we need to have this kind of fellowship. We need to have this kind of connectivity. That's why it is so critically important, listen, for us to make this, what we're doing right here, attending church together, so critically important. Being involved in a, in a growth group, so critically important. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25 says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Now that word consider, you might want to just take a note of that. That word consider, it means to fix your eyes upon. It means to examine closely. And this is what the Bible says that you and I are to do as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are to examine one another closely. Now, that sounds good until somebody examines your life closely. And then you're like, mind your own business, man. Then we turn into a Bible scholar. Oh, you know, Jesus said, take the, take the plank out of your own eye. You know, before you go taking the speck out of my eye. Yeah, Jesus did say that, but he's talking about when we have a pharisaical attitude, a legalistic attitude where I'm like, you know, I'm holier than thou and I'm going to preach to everybody about how they ought to live their life and I'm never going to take a look in the mirror. Jesus did not say that in the context of what Hebrews uh, 10, 24, and 25 is saying it, where the attitude there is to be able to say, look, we need each other. And, and, and there's some days... When your zipper's going to be down, I'll just say it, metaphorically speaking, spiritually speaking, there are some days when your zipper's going to be down, okay? And in that moment, you need somebody who's going to love you and go, hey, your zipper's down, man. Spiritually speaking, I need to tell you, you, you're doing this, and you ought not to do that, man. Right now, what happens when somebody says that to us? Well, this is why he says... Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together because our temptation when we have somebody hold us accountable is to say, I'm out of here. I'm not going to get in that situation again. 
I don't want to assemble together. Well, why? Well, because they might hold me accountable. I don't want to be held accountable, man. Now, we won't phrase it that way. We'll say, hey, you know, we'll turn all, you know, Wizard of Oz. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, you know. I just want to live how I'm going to live. And you just mind your own business. No, that's not what we need. Listen, I've been married 30 years. My wife has often said to me, Ted, you need to listen to me right now. Right? Now, when my wife says that, because she doesn't, she doesn't pull that little ace out of, her, out of her sleeve, you know, every day. And when my wife says, you need to listen to me right now, I, I, it's, it's a sobering statement. Why? Because I need to listen to her. See, so you need to have those people that you're going to, David doesn't go in, he doesn't face this fight alone. He's like, who's going with me? I ask you the question, and maybe even just jot it down on your notes, who's going with you? Who, who in your life have you given permission to, hey, you, you, you can speak into my life, man. Who, who are you relationally connected with? And this is why, you know, the Bible says, be not deceived, bad company corrupts good character. So often we go fishing for relationships, so people are going to tell me what I want to hear. I, you see, I was watching some sports channel, I saw Mike Tyson and how his career just went so completely south. And, and what happened in his life, he didn't have anybody in his life tell him what he needed to hear. Joe Walsh, same thing. He was a member of the Eagles, totally strung out on drugs. He's completely surrounded by people who just ride in the train, man, ride in the gravy train. And nobody was willing to step up and go, dude, your life is a train wreck right now. And you need to get right. So who's in your life that you can allow in? Christian fellowship so absolutely critically essential. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass... You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Are we doing that? Well, listen, this is David's fight. Let's move now to David's faith, verse 7. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, And there Saul lay sleeping within the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. Saul, you know, (laughs) there's he and his spear. Don't leave home without it. He's always got it, you know, with him. And Abner and the people lay all around him. And then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth. And I will not have to strike him a second time. Abner's like, just let me run him through. Please, please, let me do it. But, verse 9, David says to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, furthermore, As the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to the battle and perish. Right? He says, the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but please take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. Verse 12, so David took the spear. He's like, I can't let Abishai touch that spear. That temptation, just too much for the guy. So David took the spear and the jug jug of water by Saul's head. And they got away, and no man saw or knew it or awoke, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. Now David went over to the other side, and he stood on the top of a hill afar off, a great distance being between them. And David called out to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner. Now, in this area, there's a great distance, but... but your, the spoken word, just at a normal, just a, a conversational voice, carries like a ridiculous way. I mean, when you go there and you see and you, I mean, you can have a person like a quarter of a mile away and they can speak and you hear it like they're just, just right, you know, down, down, the, down the way. My house has kind of these same acoustics. My wife can be in the front living room, and because of the way the stairway is, I can be sitting in my office upstairs, and she can talk to me in a normal conversational voice. And so this is what's happening. He's a great distance away, but the voice carries, and David called out to the people, saying to Abner, the son of Ner, do, not, do, do you not answer, Abner? 
And then Abner answered, and he said, Who are you calling out to the king? And so David said to Abner, Now Abner's sleeping right there next to Saul. He's got the responsibility to guard and protect Saul. He's in charge of all his forces. Basically, he's got David's job. And so David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy your lord the king. This thing that you have done is not good. He's throwing him right under the bus in front of his boss. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not guarded your master and the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was by his head. He's like, look, I took these things. They were right next to his head. I could easily be standing here with Saul's head talking to you. You know, check it out. Then Saul knew David's voice, and he said, Is that your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he says, Why does my lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done, or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. In other words, what David's saying is, look, if I've done something wrong, just stink and tell me and I'll repent of it. But if it's somebody else that stirred you up. Now, David's kind of throwing a bone here. He's sort of giving Saul an easy way out because, you know, for the most part, this has been Saul's hatched axe to grind all within his own heart. But David's kind of giving him, you know, a little easy way out just to go, look, if people have stirred you up, or Saul, Saul could go, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't be doing that, and yeah, and I and have a true repentance. Now, he's going to say at the end of this story, he's going to say something like that, but it's not true repentance. But what happens here is that David kind of gives him this out, and he's like, look, if I've, if I've legitimately done something wrong, let me know what it is. So I can repent and make an offering to the Lord, and, and we can get this thing right. But if this is just guys that are stirring us up, and now they've driven me away, I can't go to the temple. I'm out in the wilderness. I got no home. I got no job. I got no country. I got no place that I can go to worship God in terms of, you know, going to the, to the tabernacle. It just, you know, the, you, you put me in a, in a really bad spot here. So now, verse 20, do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea as when one hunts a partridge in the mountains. When they would hunt partridges, they would not fly. And the way they would catch them is they would just wear them out. They'd run them, they'd chase them, and they'd run around the ground, and then pretty soon they'd, they'd get them, they'd wear them down, and they'd get them. And David's like, dude, I'm not worth the effort. Seriously, I, I, I haven't done nothing to you, man. Why, why are, why are you, you coming after me this way? Now, David's faith here is what we're seeing, because if you notice there again in verse 10, David's response to Abishai is to go, look, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Listen, David understood that victory would come by by the faith and not by flesh. David understood that victory would come by faith and not by the flesh. Listen, Here's what he understands. He understands that his responsibility is not to execute judgment against Saul. His responsibility is to exercise his faith. Now keep that in mind. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6 real quickly. Ephesians chapter 6. As we go here, I mean, the idea is that David, David is exercising faith. And he's exercising faith by understanding that, look, it's not my job to execute judgment against Saul. It's my job by faith to, to exercise my faith and to do what? To take a man who's in sin, to make, take a man who really has, has caused my life wrong, 
And to take a man who's really forsaking the Lord and making my life miserable, not executing judgment against him, but rather to, 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 to turn him over to the Lord completely. Now, with that in mind, here in, in Ephesians chapter 6, again, if you were with us last week, we went through this book of Ephesians and we talked about how God's done this wonderful saving work in our lives, when we surrender our life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and having done this, salva- that this, this work of salvation in our lives, then the Bible says that God has a work that he wants to do through you. And how, how he ordains, he's, he's got this sovereign plan, this sovereign will for your life, for my life. The thing that he wants to do in you is save you, and then he wants to work through you to bring him glory and honor. And so we looked at what is this responding to the Lord, this, this, this work that God has pre- prepared beforehand for us that we should walk in. What is this work all about? And this work that God wants to do in us, well, we saw that, that you know, it's, it's a work of, well, we're to walk in love, we're to walk in light, we're to walk in wisdom, and we're to walk in submission to God and to one another. And, you know, wives submitting to their husbands, children submitting to, to their parents, and so on. And this is the way Paul weaves through this book of Ephesians. And then he gets to, cha- to chapter 6. And after talking about this work, of, uh, the, the, all these different works, concluding with the work of submission, he says this in verse 10. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong In the Lord, not in your works. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Not in the power of your might, in the power of his might. And then he says, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And then now he talks about that in verse 12. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. See, what would happen in this day and age is that when an enemy, when an overtaking army would defeat an enemy, they would take the citizens of, of that territory, they would take them captive. Right? And so what Paul is saying here is that our battle isn't against the citizens that have been taken captive. Our battle isn't against the captives, it's against the captors. That's what he's saying. And so the idea here is that for David, he needs to understand okay, look, my battle isn't so much with Saul, my battle is with. with Satan and demonic realm and, and, and really, you know what? I can, I can turn them, I can turn him over to the Lord. It's the Lord that can turn his heart. It's the Lord that can change his heart. It's the Lord that can deal with Saul and it's only the Lord that can deal with Saul. Now, he makes his plea but he turns him over to the Lord. And that's so important because what, you, what, what this is telling us in Ephesians 6 is that there's larger forces involved, right? we got to understand our, our battle today is not against the, those that have been taken captive by the enemy to do his will. Our battle is against Satan and the demonic forces that are at work in this world. So critically important. This is why Jesus declared at the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, and that the oppressed will be set free. So the war, I want you to hear, isn't against people, it's against Satan and the demonic realm. Now why am I drilling that into the ground? Well, because this week, we saw the Supreme Court come down with a ruling, with a decision that flies right smack in the face of God's word. The Supreme Court saying that it is now the law of the land that, that there are, is such a thing as homosexual marriage, and that it is to be the law of the land in all 50 states. Now, where our nation is right now, and I would just simply say this, and I, I, I do not have the time to do this, but I feel led to do it. So, so you know, Romans chapter 1, it says, uh, Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also 
for the Greek. He says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. But then he goes on to say this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He says, because what, they, what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and in their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be, be wise... They became fools and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. In other words, we worship idols, right? Therefore, God has also given them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He says, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. Now, he goes on, and i got to in- include these next two verses. He says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Listen, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetous, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parent, undiscerning. The list goes on and on and on. And what I want you to hear is that what Paul is describing in Romans chapter 1 is people who have flat out rejected God. And it's not just homosexuality. He lists a number of behaviors of people who have rejected God. And what I'm submitting to you today is that there is a whole host of people who have rejected God. And in rejecting God, well, listen, uh, listen to the way Jeremiah puts it, because I think it sums up our, 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 our world pretty good. He says, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. What he's saying there is that people have rejected God, they've rejected the only true source of life, and they've dug something else to quench their thirst. And they're following after that. It's not just homosexuality. It's all of the different things that people, the rejecting world, has rejected God to turn to. And what I'm saying to you is that these are people who are held captive by an enemy. This is the work of Satan. This is the work of demons to lead people astray, to deceive them. So your battle with what has gone on is not with homosexuals or even with the Supreme Court. Your battle is with Satan and the work that he's trying to do. And we have to see it for what it is. And so your enemy isn't the homosexual or the murderer or, or the, the, you know, the, who, whatever it is. Your enemy is Satan. Now... The, the, the most loving way that I can articulate this is just to point you to the woman at the well. And people have asked the question, and, and I've you know, seen it splashed all over Facebook, you know, what, what, what would Jesus do in this situation? Well, I see what Jesus did with the woman at the well, and that tells me the way that we ought to be responding to this as the body of Christ. Because what happened is Jesus goes to the woman at the well, and I'm just going to paraphrase the story, but he goes to the woman at the well, it's there in Samaria. Jews, you know, just avoided Samaria like the plague. They couldn't stand Samarians. They were half-breeds. They, they, they thought that all Samarians were good for was to fuel the fires of hell <coughs> and that they should be, you know, um, just not, no fellowship with them, whatever. <coughs> Jesus goes, sees this woman, go, approaches this Samarian woman at noon. She's there in the heat of the day. 
And, and, and which tells us, gives us kind of a clue that maybe she's sort of marginalized from society anyway because, you know, most people would go in the early morning and late evening so they didn't have to be out there in the sun. Here's this, this chick out there in the middle of the day. She's avoiding people. She's shunned by people. She's just going, you know, while she can. And he's like, hey, would you give me a drink of water? She's like, you, what is it? You a Jew asking me, a Sumerian, for a drink of water? What, what's wrong with you kind of thing? Jesus basically says, look, if you, if you knew who it was who was offering you a drink of water, you know, or who was asking you for water, you would have, you would have received this living water that, 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 that he has to give you. You'd never thirst again. She's like, huh? She's like, where is this living water that I can drink of it? And he says, go, go get your husband and come back and I'll tell you. She's like, I don't have a husband. And Jesus, putting his finger right on the bullseye of her life, he says, you've spoken true. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're shacking up with now isn't your husband. She's like, I perceive you are a prophet. (laughs) And what does she do? She goes and runs out, and she tells everybody, hey, come hear a man who, who told me everything about my life. Well, Jesus didn't tell her everything about his life, her life. He just said, hey, look, you know, you've been with five husbands and now you're shacking up with a sixth guy who you're not married to. But why did she describe it as this guy told me everything about my life? Because that was, that was her life. There's a woman who'd forsaken God, really, and she, was drink, she dug her own well. Her life was, I need a man. A man's going to fix everything. And so she bent her life around now, as it were, six men, just seeking for that thing that's going to fulfill her. She, she, listen, she drank of the word, world's well, and she came away thirsty. And Jesus said, you need my well. You need me. And what the world desperately needs right now, a world that's been taken captive, a world that is drinking from a well that never satisfies, is they need godly men and women Listen, who are going to just lovingly share the gospel. Now, this is complex. It is complicated. I don't even pretend to address the whole issue in this message. I'm just addressing one part of the, of the issue, and that is, listen, in all of this, we need to understand, we need to remember the lost. And we need to understand our mandate. Our mandate is to reach the lost with, with, with the gospel of Christ. Paul's words to Timothy, I think, best sum up what our mindset ought to be as the body of Christ where this whole situation is concerned. Listen to what Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. He said, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses, and listen, here it is, escape the snare of the devil having been taken captive by him to do his will. We need to understand that's our mandate. And so that I'm perfectly clear, I am not saying that I support this decision that has come down from the Supreme Court. I absolutely do not. And while it hasn't gotten to this place yet, if in the future I am told as a pastor that if I do not officiate a homosexual wedding, I will go to jail, then I'll go to jail. And if, they, if in the future I am told to do anything that contradicts God's will, I will choose God and let man be damned. That is the position that I'm going to take. But I want. You clap. And let me just tell you this the first thing they're going to hit is tax exempt status for our, for our contributions. First thing that's going to happen. That's the, first, that's the first way churches are going to be attacked by our government in the direction that it's going is that they're going to, they're going to say, okay, you want to be a church that says that? Well, then, then your, 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 your offerings are no longer tax exempt. But you know what? We let God be true and let every man be a liar. But what I'm saying is that we have to be defined by our love. And that's the thing. And that's a tricky thing because we're outraged at what the enemy has done. But we have to understand it's the enemy. It's Satan 
it, it, the people that are, are, that are being manipulated by Satan, they've just been taken captive to do his will. They're blind. They're doing what sinners do. They sin. They're doing what the lost does. The lost is lost. And a homosexual is no different than anybody else who is just caught up in sin. That sin is no greater than any other sin. And we have to love and we have to reach out. We must not quarrel, but we must be gentle to all. And we, we have to tell people, listen, God loves you and I love you. And if I have a homosexual come to this church and they say, we want to come to this church, I'm going to say, oh, come on in. Here's the two seats. Have a seat. Hear the message. Receive God's love. But I will be absolutely firm. And this is the standard. And this is, this is you're coming here as a lost person who needs Christ, just like anybody else who's lost and needs Christ. And I pray you find him here. And I pray you see in me the love of Jesus Christ because Jesus said, all men will know you're my disciples by the love you have one for another. Now hold that thought and I want you to see the second point about David's faith and I'll make it quickly. But David understood that principles don't change with circumstances. David understood that principles don't change with circumstances. What am I talking about? Well, back in 1 Samuel 26, what you see there in verse 10 is that, well, prior to that, Abishai says to David in verse 8, let me kill him. You don't want to kill him? Fine, let me kill him. And then it'll be me killing him. It won't be you killing him. And then, you know, we'll be all done with your problem there. And David understood that, that look, the, the, the principles don't change with the circumstances. See, our, our attitude in all this, the temptation would be, well, you know what? This whole thing is wrong, and the way it went down is wrong, and so now, you know, the problem is with, you know, our, our, our government and our structure, and we need to have civil war, and we need to... And, and, I'm, I'm just simply saying that the principles don't change. And David Guzik quotes so much better. I love his quote. I'm just, I wish I'd put it on the screen, but I'll just tell it to you. Here's what he says about this. He says, we might say that since Saul deserved it, and since it wouldn't technically be David doing it, that it was the right thing to kill Saul, but if it was the right thing, this was the wrong way. And often, when we have a right thing in front of us, we will be tempted to pursue it in a wrong way. And what I'm saying is that the principles don't change with the circumstances. And even though this decision might make us outraged, and even though some of the, the, just the blatant ways that people are thumbing their nose at God, and how our country, for a, a large section of our country, is turning away from God, the, the temptation might be to respond to it in an ungodly way. And I've already seen a little bit of that on Facebook. We've already seen a little bit about, you know, this, the responding in the flesh and not responding in the spirit. Listen, these people need Christ and we need to respond in the spirit. And that is so critically important. Well, that's Saul's, or David's faith, that's David's fight, or David's fight, that's David's faith. We'll finish with Saul's folly, verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more. Yeah, right. We've heard you say that before, Saul. And Saul doesn't mean it anymore here. He says, uh, Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. We're going to come back and finish on that in two seconds here. Verse 22. And David answered, and he said, Here's the king's spear. Let one of your young men come over and get it. In other words, David didn't say, oh, okay, I'll come around. I'll be right there, Saul. I'll come back. He's like, your, Saul, your sword's here. Your jug of water's here. Send somebody to get it because I ain't bringing it to you. I ain't coming back. May the Lord, David says to Saul, repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness for the Lord delivered you into my hand today but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so, now he doesn't say, so my life is now valued in your eyes. That's not what he says. Pay close attention. He says, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. You can't miss what David just said. He said, look, I, value, uh, I did what it was right in the sight of God with you. And now guess what? I'm going to trust myself to the Lord. And that's the issue for us. We do what's right in the sight of the Lord. 
and all of the stuff that we want to go militant about and our, you know, civil war about or whatever it is, we go, you know what, I'll trust all that to God. Because listen, God hasn't stopped being God. And marriage hasn't stopped being the way God defined marriage. I don't care who defines marriage. God's already defined how marriage is. And God's on the throne. And our country might be going to hell in a handbasket. But the question is you. Where are you going? How are you living your life? That's the question. Let the, let the whole world go straight to hell. Where are you going and what are you doing to reach your neighbor? What are you doing to reach your friends? And I just challenge you with this question. This whole Supreme Court thing might make you really, really upset. How much did you pray about it before it went down? That one hit me, by the way. Okay? Just so you know. So he says, listen, indeed your life was valued much this day. In my eyes, so that let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. And then Saul said to David, <coughs> May you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. And so David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. This is the last conversation they ever had. This is the last time they ever talked. This is it. David's energy is to seek peace and reconciliation and to commit his way to the Lord. All of his energy goes to that. And so the epitaph of David's life, what could be written on his tombstone, is a man after God's own heart. Saul's energy, listen, it leaned to his own understanding, failed to obey, fighting against God. All of his energy goes to digging his own well and to drinking from his own well. And Saul's epitaph, what's written on Saul's tombstone, he said it himself. I have played the fool and I've erred exceedingly. And he did play the fool. Listen, Saul was given the spirit of God. He was given the friendship of Samuel. He was given the devotion of a nation. And he decided to forsake God and dig his own well. That's Saul's folly. So the closing application for us, yes, you got a daily fight. And it is a knockdown, drag out, daily fight. It has to be a fight of faith. And you have to answer the question, am I going to finish up like Saul, where the epitaph of my life is I played the fool? Or is it going to be the epitaph of David who says, you know what? I'm just going to honor God and trust him. If he wants to take you out, he'll take you out. If he sees fit to leave you in place, then that's his business. I'm going to do everything I can to treat you and to turn you over to God.